Welcome, ladies and gents. It's your host, Drew, here at Culture Wars. I wish to go over the format. Well, I better wait. All will be revealed after the intro. Whether it's academia, the entertainment industry, the lamestream media, religion, or politics, we will confront the secular left in all its grotesque manifestations here at Culture Wars. Okay, so I've altered the format for tonight's show a little bit. Um, instead of having an outline with, uh, segments covering, you know, um, topics and stories around a topic, I want to, at the outset, read two statements that I have, uh, written, um, and I will pause at, as I see fit, to expand on certain points, and when it's over, I want to then break it down with some more traditional analysis. Just to give you a tiny preview though and whet your appetite I um named this episode Cruel Bureaucrats and my statement uh if you will it it uh is about Joe Biden and the election coming up you know we do have an election coming up and just I think these are things that we need to pause and think about think through Now look, I know I've uh, stated this already on another broadcast, but one one charge you can't level against the left is you can't say that they aren't strategic. I mean, for goodness sakes. If nothing else, the left is devious. This is the thought that I had the other day that um, developed into me writing this statement. So let's unpack this. Let's break it down. Okay, so let's start by analyzing the past 12 years of 
presidential campaign politics. I know, this sounds like a very tedious task, but hold on there. So, we start in 2008. And we have... The Chosen One was sent to the Democrats. To the Democrat Party. Barack Hussein Obama. Barack Obama... For all his faults. And they are many. He was. A successful politician. Not. Necessarily a successful president. But a successful politician. For many reasons. He was. Very. Uh, successful at campaigning. And. He used this to construct a monstrous infrastructure for the DNC. Some of the fruit of which is still there in place. Skip to 2016 when he was required to exit stage left. There was a dark void left for the Democrat Party and the only person that was left to fill that hole was Hillary Rotten Clinton who's got so much baggage and was probably one of the most unlikable candidates of all time meanwhile let's check out what was going on on the Republican side Trump rose quickly. Now, let's consider for a few minutes the phenomenon that is Donald Trump. I believe Donald Trump's political success could be attributable to many factors. For one thing, I think that Donald Trump was an opportunist. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Uh, for one, I believe he understood the political winds that were blowing that direction. And look, I know that this is usually a negative thing, but I don't necessarily think that it's always a negative thing for politicians who run for political office to evolve their positions on specific policies. Um, that's why we have uh, offices of our government that are elected for those offices that are elected is so that they can govern so Trump ran as a Republican one position I believe he always shared with Republicans was his patriotism a true love of this 
nation. Consider this little tidbit. Trump could have just as easily ran as a Democrat. I, because I believe Trump started out as a moderate liberal like Ronald Reagan. It was almost on a whim he decided to run as a Republican. It wasn't even 10 seconds after he started to become successful in the Republican Party. And on the left, the knives had already come out for him. I believe seeing his side's true colors hurt Trump on a personal level. He had been close friends with these people and it meant less than dirt to them. This, as we know, is how the left operates. For all their years of preaching tolerance, the left has less than zero for anyone who does not agree with them on every little thing. The Democrat Party operates more like a church. If you disobey, you will be excommunicated. I believe this next factor also played a role in Trump being successful in the Republican Party. He grew to truly love the people he campaigned to and listen to their views. For once, we, the Republican Party's base, actually felt heard. Trump may be an imperfect s spokesman, but at least he represented us. Okay, I want to pause here and break this point down a little bit. I'm going to break it down a little bit right here right now. But I'm going to circle back to this point and break it down some more. Okay, I'm going to read this this story from the Hill newspaper says the title says the Senate rejects broad restrictions on transfers of military grade equipment to police. Okay. I need to preface this by saying something you should know about me, my views on um, policing is I'm gen generally I have some strong libertarian leanings on policing. Normally I'm the guy saying demilitarize our police. But times like these are making me rethink my earlier positions a little. Reading the article, the Senate on Tuesday rejected a proposal to place broad restrictions on the transfer of military-grade equipment to local police departments. Senators voted 
51 to 49 on an amendment spearheaded by Senator Brian Schatz, Democrat of Hawaii, to a mammoth defense bill falling short of the 60 votes needed. GOP Senators Steve Daines of Montana, Cory Gardner of Colorado, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. She's always good for stabbing us in the back, by the way. And Rand Paul supported the amendment. See, this is my point. This is the kind of trash the Republican Party gives us. They're not representing us, their base, with a vote like this. They're not representing the small businessmen and women whose livelihoods are being looted. Schatz's proposals included broad limits on what can't be transferred, including tracked combat vehicles, weaponized drones, bayonets, grenade launchers, and certain gases, including tear gas. Schatz's amendment would not have prohibited the transfer of defensive equipment. Our amendment will permanently prohibit the transfer of lethal military weapons to police departments, Schatz said ahead of the vote. Our communities are not battlefields. Our communities are not battlefields? Do you understand how out of touch a statement like that makes you sound. And remember, I'm usually the guy that says, Demilitarize our police. Not now. I say militarize our police. Because our communities have been turned into battlefields. You idiot! Another story from Breitbart. CNN sounds alarm. Black Lives Matter fails to activate black vote for Joe Biden as Donald Trump unexpectedly holding firm. Now let me ask you a question. Why would Trump be holding firm with the black vote? Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because many blacks don't feel represented by Black Lives Matter. Because a lot of the violence that's happening that is turning these communities into battlefields are communities that they live in. And they don't feel represented by Joe Biden and his party who at best have tried to justify all this and at worst have promoted it. This segues seamlessly into um, my next point that I want to break down. Trump was also successful in the Republican Party because he was able to pick up a big sector of the electorate Republicans couldn't. Not just a piece of the black vote but also a piece of 
uh, of the vote of union workers. I'm telling you, Republicans are missing an opportunity here. And I'm not talking about pandering here. I'm talking about if they would just offer something different. I've got this other story here I want to read from PJ Media. Title says National The National Association of Police Organizations ditches Biden and endorses Trump. On Wednesday, the National Association of Police Organizations, which represents over a thousand police unions and 241,000 police officers endorsed President Trump's re-election. The group cited Trump's steadfast and very public support for law enforcement in their endorsement letter, which was obtained by the Washington Times. They previously endorsed Joe Biden as vice president in 2008 and 2012. Their president said... The president, Michael McHale, noted that Trump's support of the police during the wave of anti-police sentiment that came in the wake of the death of George Floyd was critical. See, they're offering, Trump was offering something different than the wave of anti-police sentiment. Um, anyway, uh, I'm... Proceeding with the story, um, this was appreciated. During this time, the president says, of unfair and inaccurate opprobrium being directed at our members by so many. The endorsement is a huge blow to Joe Biden, who fancies himself both a union man and an ally of police. Earlier this month, Biden referred to the police as the enemy and seemingly endorsed defunding the police. Surplus military equipment for law enforcement. They don't need that. The last thing you need is an up-armored Humvee coming into a neighborhood. It's like the military invading. They don't know anybody. They become the enemy. They're supposed to be protecting these people, Biden said before announcing support for some version of defunding the police. Joe Biden is trying to find some middle ground position to be able to support the increasingly radical Black Lives Matter movement, which not only believes in systemic racism in police departments, but also endorses defunding police and support for the police. See... This is what I was discussing in the last episode. There is no middle ground with the progressive left. And you got Joe Biden over here trying to play footsie with them. Actually, at this point, he's... At this point, it's beyond playing footsie with them. So, back to my main point many of these black voters that live in these communities and union workers are 
hardworking people who believe this this country is a good country and they love their rights that they have and sure maybe they believe in a uh bigger social safety net than we do so they voted democrat for generations and they just want the government to do its damned job but currently just like many of the other democrat constituencies they see that the democrat party is moving farther and farther away from them so this worked Trump was elected I am aware neither Trump nor Hillary was terribly likable candidate um, but it's my view that Trump was far more likable that aside though Likeability isn't the only factor why people vote for a candidate. Skipping to the current election, uh, the Democrats started with a wide field. I'm talking quantity, not quality. I don't want to get into examining all the many issues with the Democrat Party today that for another episode. Then it was down to two. In my view, there was the candidate they wanted, Sanders, and there was the candidate they picked uh, for electability, Joe Biden. I'm gonna pause here again at this point. So I have another story from PJ Media. S the title says, No malarkey, Biden's unity platform shows conclusively that he's already Bernie's and AOC's puppet. Now look, we'll go through this so-called unity platform in a little while, but let's keep reading the story for now. Earlier this week, Joe Biden released his unity platform. Unity should mean compromise. All the factions should have to give up something to gain an overall broad agreement. But Biden's platform is not that. And I just want to pause to point out, this isn't Biden's platform. This is the party's platform. Take Biden's energy policy. He won the Democratic primary largely by being the only candidate who appeared to be viable in a national election. He's unexciting, but the brand thinking was that he's basically a Honda Accord. Not flashy, but reliable. Senator Bernie Sanders generates energy on the party's left flank, but he is a hard-bitten leftist who never held a private sector job, got himself tossed out of a commune for being a layabout, and who loves Castro and socialism, Sanders is well outside the mainstream. Likewise, Rep. 
AOC wins in her very narrowly drawn, very liberal New York congressional district. She could not win in a statewide election in New York at this point, never mind a national one. She is well outside the mainstream, often embarrassing herself on social media without having the self-awareness to realize it. I'm pausing again. It's like I said, they they picked Joe Biden for electability. They uh, conclude the article by saying Biden has become the radical left's puppet. Recall that I said in the um, last episode that they're not voting for Joe Biden. They're voting for the party. And the party's platform is Marxism. I seen this coming a mile away. And the reason the party's platform is Marxism, the reason why it's Marxism is because, well, there's two reasons. One is because unlike the Republican Party, the Democrat Party always aims to make its base happy. And its base is Marxist. Two is people in power love Marxism. Because as I said on uh, earlier show, Marxism is totalitarian. Now I'm going to pick up with reading my statement. The only faults that Hillary had that Joe Biden doesn't have is likability. Consider this. They are running a candidate who can't, he's unable to campaign in any traditional sense. I want to pause here again. I have a, another story from PJ Media titled, um, Tweeting from his basement, Joe Biden threatens to transform America. Uh, one can say a lot of, a lot with a few words, and Democrat former Veep and presidential nominee Joe Biden has in his tweet, We're going to beat Donald Trump, and when we do, we won't just rebuild this nation, we'll transform it. The writer goes on, If we must read more tea leaves, since no reporter will ask Joe these words, let's look at what's happening in Democrat-run cities around the country. About 26 years of patient law enforcement work to bring crime down from its historic high in the early 90s has been undone in a month. Um, Joe hasn't said one word about the rioting, looting, or general mayhem that is engulfing so many cities all run by Democrats around the country. He hasn't said anything about the fact that Atlanta has gotten so bad the state of Georgia is resorting to the National Guard. If Joe has anything like what's happening in Democrat cities in mind for the rest of the country, then he should say so. Or has he 
or say he has something else in mind, and thereby at least implicitly criticize all those Democrat mayors and city councils. See, this is what I mean by he's not campaigning in any traditional sense. Consider this. Joe Biden hasn't, hasn't been forced to answer a single question, whether from the media or voters, because he's unable. And to be fair, the majority of the press doesn't seem the least bit curious about asking him any questions. So, returning to my statement, they're running a candidate who is unable to campaign in any traditional sense of the word on a platform of Marxism. I want to pause here again. This segues me into my next story I want to read. This story is from Newsbusters. The title is, When Will CNN Stop Lying? Network Declares Biden and Clinton Moderates. On Monday's New Day, CNN co-host John Berman brought on left-wing Democrat New York congressional candidate Jamal Bowman to preach the party's radical agenda. Berman even blatantly lied about the direction of the Democrat Party by describing Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and Hillary Clinton as moderate. Berman cheered the primary victory of his leftist guest, a stunning political upset, a 16-term incumbent, and the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee Democratic Congressman Elliot Engel defeated in a primary race here in New York by former educator Jamal Bowman. The host then congratulated Bowman for accomplishing quite an achievement. Minutes later, after teeing up the radical Democrat for a routine round of Trump bashing, Berman absurdly tried to suggest that Joe Biden was a moderate compared to Bowman. Now, you ran very much as a new progressive here in New York. How would you say your politics align with that of the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden? Berman then laughably referred to other extreme Democratic politicians as moderate and centrist. Have you heard from some of these Democratic colleagues who people might call more moderate or more centrist, including the ones who endorsed your opponent. I'm thinking about Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton. I'm sure I'm leaving people out here. <sighs> okay, so we just went over how Joe Biden is a puppet of the Marxist left. And we're going to go over it in more detail, but we're now being gaslighted. They want us to believe that Joe Biden is a moderate after swallowing every Marxist position pill that they fed him. So let me ask a question. When the heck did Marxism become mainstream? Because that's what this is. This is the mainstreaming of Marxism. Marxism is now moderate. So, they're running a candidate who is unable to campaign 
in any traditional sense of the word, on a platform of Marxism against our juggernaut of a candidate, Donald Trump. And they're smacking us around like a ping pong ball. Consider that for a moment. My rhetorical question I pose to you to conclude my written statement is why does the left why is it always victorious even when it shouldn't be okay now I want to get into this in some more detail I want to read this story from the hill and as I'm reading it I want to give you some commentary and some of you who are on my team are going to hate me for some of this commentary. And look, I understand. But all that I ask of you is that you at least consider what I'm saying. If you think I'm wrong, fine. But at least consider it before just dismissing it. And look, I understand what many of your argument is that, um, look, the Republicans may not be perfect, but they're a heck of a lot better than the Democrats. And I, on that, I agree with you. All that I am trying, the point that I'm trying to make is that, is that sometimes it's like we elect these Republicans and they govern from the same premises that the Democrats do, that big government is the cure for everything. And I'll be honest, I haven't been very happy with Trump's handling of policies regarding the COVID-19. Now, am I saying that it's as bad as Joe Biden would have done? No, not necessarily. We elect these Republicans to represent us, our values, our principles, and I think we have a right, even a duty, to hold them responsible. Anyways, this article's title is Democrats Optimistic About Chances of Winning Senate. Democratic senators are feeling increasingly optimistic about their chances of winning back the Senate majority in November. But Democrats have seen their odds boosted in recent weeks by President Trump's, um, uh, um, or by the criticism, widespread criticism of Trump's handling of the twin crises of the coronavirus pandemic and widespread anger 
over police brutality toward African Americans. I have two problems with this paragraph. One is the way the leftist media phrases these these twin crises. The coronavirus pandemic. In my mind, it's not the coronavirus pandemic that was the problem. It was the response to it. And the way that our rights were taken. And number two, it wasn't about widespread anger over police brutality toward African Americans. There, there was no legitimate widespread anger. That was just a pretext for these Marxist criminals and thugs and terrorists. And on this crisis number two, the law enforcement crisis, I think Trump's handling of it, I would have liked to have seen um, him handle it the way he's handling it now a little sooner, but I think that he's doing a superb job right now. Okay, I gotta read this next paragraph. You know, you just gotta love the leftist media's phrasing of the coronavirus pandemic has also crushed what had been a strong economy undermining Trump's greatest strength. Um, the coronavirus pandemic did not crush the strong economy. It was your comrades, the governors, that crushed this economy. And it wasn't necessary. Okay, this next paragraph I'm going to read, I'm reading it because I might want to go into this problem in more detail on another show. There are a lot of warning signs for Republicans, the strategist added, Democrat strategist that is. I think that a big part of how the map has shifted in our favor is that the number of states in play has grown and that's been almost entirely to our benefit. The reason for this, one of the main reasons, is illegal immigration. And I may, like I said, go into more detail on that in another show. I have to read this next sentence because, like I told you, I'm from Michigan. It says Republicans are hoping to unseat Senator Gary Peters, though he remains the favorite to win. And I hope this... John James can unseat Gary Peters because we haven't had a Republican senator in Michigan for a while now. You want to hear something kind of funny in a sick way? Let me read this next paragraph. Dick Durbin is talking. The senator says, Whatever Joe Biden is doing, 
he should continue doing. If that means working out of his basement in Delaware, so be it. I know it is frustrating. He told me he is frustrated by it. But by maintaining a certain level of decorum and respect, he is such a sharp contrast to the president that I think it is part of the reason that his poll numbers are going the, the, his way. Okay, in this next paragraph, we have a quote from this idiot senator, John Thune, talking about Trump and what his strategy should be, especially regarding his strategy to win get the moderate and independence vote. Um, he says, I think he can win those people back, but it will probably require not only a message that deals with substance and policy, but I think a message that conveys a perhaps different tone. No. No. It's like I said earlier, he doesn't need a change in tone. He needs to just offer something different than what the progressive left is offering. Look, I'm telling you, as long as the Republicans in the Senate think that they have a tone problem or that they should be quibbling with the Democrats over police reform or that they should be running on a, a platform of Marxism light, then the Democrats' optimism that they can, they can take back the Senate is well-founded. Uh, okay, I want to read another story from National Review. And I would like to preface this, though, by giving you my opinion on National Review. Many of the authors there, um, because of their Trump derangement syndrome, have started making very left-leaning arguments just so that they can be on the opposite side of anything that Trump is on. The title of the article reads, Missouri AG to seek dismissal of charges against a couple who pointed guns at protesters. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt is promising to seek the dismissal of charges against the St. Louis couple who pointed guns at protesters outside their house last month in an incident that was caught on video. Mark and Patricia McCloskey were charged Tuesday with unlawful use of a weapon by St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. Um... Enough is enough, the Attorney General said in a video message posted just hours after charges were filed. A political prosecution such as this one would have a chilling effect on Missourians exercising the right to self-defense. And I say, you're darn right enough is enough! Schmidt cited Missouri's Castle Doctrine 
which he said provides broad rights to Missourians to protect and defend their personal safety and property against those who wish to do them harm. I'm happy he's dismissing the charges, but this shouldn't have happened! This wouldn't have happened if we weren't inverting the Constitution! What happened to the Second Amendment? The right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. It's worse than that. We're inverting good and evil. The group began yelling obscenities and threats of harm to both victims, the police said, when the victims observed multiple subjects who were armed. They then armed themselves and contacted the police. The police said they were investigating the incident to determine whether the protesters committed trespassing and fourth degree assault by intimidation. Let me ask you a question. What unlawful use of a gun was there? All three of their most fundamental rights were being infringed. Life, liberty, and property. And this do-nothing government that we have now did nothing to secure these rights for them. So they used their Second Amendment right to secure their own rights. <sighs> okay. I want to read a quote from uh, this story in Real Clear Politics. This is from an interview that... Um, Chris Wallace was doing with Donald Trump. Chris Wallace says, You're running in large part on the economy. You've built it once. Now we had the coronavirus. You're going to build it again. With states now rolling back some of the reopening. And um, Trump says, uh, And I should point out that Chris Wallace mentioned that it's not just uh, states with Democrat governors that are rolling back reopening. Trump said, there's no reason for California to be doing what they're doing except for November 3rd. Um... On this point, he's totally right. This is purely partisan. The media and the Democrat governors have to make this virus seem as dangerous as possible. And that, that Trump's at fault. You want proof of this? There's this story from The Hill titled, Boris Johnson says, the UK won't need another nationwide shutdown. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said reimposing lockdown measures in the UK would not be necessary in an interview with the Telegraph. Johnson said the measures on a national scale were akin to a nuclear deterrent that should only be used as a last resort, saying, nor do I think we will be in that position again. Um, 
The Prime Minister also defended the UK's initial hands-off approach to the pandemic, saying lots of things went very well during that period, such as the rapid building of hospitals. Alright, folks. Here's the thing. I, I said on the last show, this isn't a novel virus anymore. The data is for the most part in and this virus isn't that dangerous to a majority of the population. So that circles me back to my point. This is purely partisan and proof is that we're one of the few nations that's still locking everything down. Back to the story. Boris Johnson says, we're not going to impose a lockdown like the one we did last March because we've learned that the economic and human consequences from a total lockdown are disastrous. See, this is the thing. I'll posit their point here that this virus is that dangerous to a majority of the population. There's also data that shows that lockdowns aren't the best way of handling this. Uh, another story to quote Trump, um, the title of this story, this next story from Real Clear Politics, Trump, American people should judge my handling of coronavirus talking about in the election so this is what I'm concerned about not so much that they'll judge his hand that will judge his handling of the coronavirus but the response to the coronavirus see I'm concerned because he knows the notion of this virus being dangerous to a majority of the population is all partisan. But then we get crap like this from Trump. And the. There's a story from Breitbart Donald Trump, wear a mask, they have an impact. President Donald Trump on Tuesday urged Americans to wear a mask to help fight the spread of coronavirus. We're asking everybody that when you're not able to socially distance, wear a mask. Get a mask, Trump said. Whether you like the mask or not, they have an impact. They'll have an effect and we need everything we can get. Um, despite Trump's support for wearing masks, he opposed setting a national mask mandate during an interview with Fox News that aired Sunday. Look, he just said that he sees through all their bullcrap that they're using all this as a partisan weapon. Then he just hands it to them so they can beat him over the head with it. He's gotta offer something different 
if I wanted that crap, I could just listen to my own governor give me lecture after lecture. Actually, this is a smooth segue. I wanna, I wanna read this to you. It's, um, and I wanna give, uh, commentary. It's the, it's an executive order, um, issued by my governor on masks. This is, I don't know, like her 600th one, just on the virus. Executive order, masks. The novel coronavirus is a respiratory disease that can result in serious illness or death. I have to pause already to mention, it's not a novel virus anymore. For the umpteenth time, carrying on with the executive order, it is caused by a new strain of coronavirus not previously identified in humans and easily spread from person to person. There is currently no approved vaccine or antiviral treatment for this disease. I'm only one paragraph in and I have to pause again. So if they ever invent a vaccine that is a battle that is gonna rage on many fronts. I don't care what your opinion is on the broader issue of vaccines. We need to fight this one. On March 10th, 2020, the Department of Health and Human Services identified the first two presumptive positive cases of COVID-19 in Michigan. On that same day, I issued Executive Order 2020-4. This order declared a state of emergency across the state of Michigan under Section 1 of Article 5 of the Michigan Constitution of 1963, the Emergency Management Act of 1976, as amended EMA MCL 30.401 blah 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 in the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act of 1945. 1945 302 is amended. EPGA MCL 10.31 blah 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 blah. Okay, this show is already going to be testing your attention span. I don't have the time to do a precise precision untangling of the ins and outs of Michigan law but she's twisting these laws to abuse her power since then the virus spread across Michigan bringing deaths in the thousands confirmed cases in the tens of thousands and deep disruption to this state's economy, homes, and educational, civic, social, and religious institutions. No! You did that! You abusive witch! On April 1st, 
2020 in response to the widespread and severe health, economic, and social harms posed by the COVID-19 pandemic, I issued Executive Order 2020-33. This order expanded on Executive Order 2020-4 and declared both a state of emergency and a state of disaster across the state of Michigan under Section 1 of Article 5 of Michigan Constitution of 1963, Emergency Management Act, and the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act of 1945, and on April 30, 2020, finding that COVID-19 had created emergency and disaster conditions across the state of Michigan, I issued Executive Order 2020-67 to continue the emergency declaration under the EPA, as well as Executive Order 2020-68 to issue new emergency and disaster declarations under the EMA. Those executive orders have been challenged in Michigan House of Representatives and Michigan Senate versus Whitmer on May 21st of 2020. The court of claims wrote the Executive Order 2020-67 is a valid exercise of authority under the emergency powers of the Governor Act, but that Executive Order 2020-68 is not a valid exercise of authority under the Emergency Management Act. Listen, I don't give a flying crap what the court said. The court's wrong. Both of those rulings are being challenged on appeal. On June 18th of 2020, I issued Executive Order 2020-127, again finding that the COVID-19 pandemic constitutes a disaster and emergency throughout the state of Michigan. That order constituted a state of emergency declaration under the Emergency Powers Act of the Governor Act of 1945. And to the extent that the governor may declare a state of emergency and a state of disaster under the Emergency Management Act when emergency and disaster conditions exist, yet the legislature had declined to grant an extension request, that order also constituted a state of emergency and a state of disaster declaration under that act. The Emergency Powers of the Governor Act provides a sufficient legal basis for issuing this executive order. In relevant part, it provides that after declaring a state of emergency, the governor may promulgate reasonable orders, rules, and regulations as he or she considers necessary to protect life and property or to bring the emergency situation within the affected area under control. Nevertheless, subject to the ongoing litigation and possibility that current rulings may be overturned or otherwise altered. I appeal also, on appeal, I also invoke the Emergency Management Act as a basis for executive action to combat the spread of COVID-19 and mitigate the effects of this emergency on the people of Michigan with the intent to preserve the rights and protections provided by the EMA, the EMA vests the governor with broad powers and duties to cope with dangers to this state or 
the people of this state presented by a disaster or emergency, which the governor may implement through executive orders, promulgations, and directives having the force and effect of law. This executive order falls within the scope of those powers and duties, and to the extent that the governor may declare a state of emergency and a state of disaster under the Emergency Management Act when emergency and disaster conditions exist, yet the legislature has not granted an extension request. They too provide a sufficient legal basis for this order. Okay, the briefest untangling I'm able to do of this is the two laws that she keeps mentioning one of them does provide the governor broad powers during a disaster by executive order. The law states, though, that whatever powers were used in the executive order, the executive order expires after a 30-day time and it can be renewed but the renewal has to get the approval of the legislature. Our present uh, legislative branch in Michigan is all Republican. So they wouldn't approve this executive order another 30 days. So what did she do? What do all Democrats do when they're in executive branch positions? They act like dictators. We're not going to wait for the legislature. I've got a pen and I've got a phone. She essentially did a big F you to... The legislature and by extension we the people of Michigan back to the executive order um, to suppress the spread of COVID-19 to prevent the state's healthcare system from being overwhelmed to allow time for the production of critical test kits ventilators and personal protective equipment to establish the public health infrastructure necessary to contain the spread of infection and to avoid needless deaths, it was reasonable and necessary to direct residents to remain at home or in their place of residence to the maximum extent feasible. To that end, on March 23, 2020, I issued Executive Order 2020-21, ordering all people in Michigan to stay home and stay safe, and Executive Orders 2020, 2020-59, 2020-70, 2020-77, 2020-92, 2020-96, and 2020-110. See, I told you, 600 executive orders just on the virus. I extended that initial order, modifying its scope as needed and appropriate to match the ever-changing circumstances presented by this pandemic. The measures put in place by these executive orders have been effective. Effective at what? Responding to a virus? Or extracting a B 
obedience out of us. Although the virus remains aggressive and persistent on July 9th, Michigan reported that a total of 67,683 confirmed cases and 6,024 deaths. The strain on our healthcare system has relented, even as our testing capacity has increased. Where Michigan was once among the state's most heavily hit, our per capita case rate is now roughly equivalent to the national average. Our progress in suppressing COVID-19, however, appears to have stalled. Over the past two weeks, every re region in Michigan has seen an uptick in new cases and daily case counts now exceed 20 cases per million in the Grand Rapids, Detroit, and Lansing re regions. Research confirms that a big part of the reason uh, is spotty compliance. Okay, this is the buzzword, compliance. Now, uh, back to the executive order, with my requirement issued in prior orders that individuals wear face coverings in public spaces. A study on different regions in Germany, for example, suggests that the adoption of mandatory mask ordinances decreased the daily growth rate of COVID-19 infections by 40%. Modeling from the University of Washington similarly indicates that more than 40,000 lives would be spared if nation spared nationwide if 95% of the population wore a mask while in public. And a study conducted by Goldman Sachs concluded that a federal mask mandate could save the U.S. economy from taking a 5% hit to GDP. Wearing a mask is an ineffective and low-cost way to protect ourselves and our families from a deadly disease. It should be and is the responsibility of every Michigander. This order reiterates that individuals are required to wear a face covering whenever they are in an indoor public space. It also requires the use of face coverings in crowded outdoor spaces. Most Significantly, the order requires any business that is open to the public to refuse entry or service to people who refuse to wear a face covering. Uh, no shirts, no shoes, no mask, no service. I apologize. I have to take another minute here. I'm about sick and tired of everyone from bureaucrats to zombies saying to me that wearing a mask is just a minor inconvenience. One, I have asthma. And this, I'm telling you, maybe now it is a minor inconvenience, but I'm telling you, the masks, this is them normalizing compliance. Anyways, returning to the executive order. Acting under the Michigan Constitution of 1963 and Michigan law, I order the following. One, any individual who leaves their home or place of residence must wear a face covering over their nose and mouth. When in any indoor public space, when outdoors and unable to consistently maintain a distance of six feet or more from individuals who are not members of their household, and when waiting for or riding on public transportation, while in a taxi or ride-sharing vehicle, 
or when using a private car service as a means of hired transportation. Two, the requirement to wear a face covering does not apply to individuals who are younger than five years old, though children two years old and older are strongly encouraged to wear a face covering pursuant to guidance from the CDC, cannot medically tolerate a face covering, are eating or drinking while seated at a food service establishment. Now hold up a second. I gotta ask you a question. Does any of this make any sense if this was actually about slowing the spread of a virus? No. Anyways. Our exercising when wearing a face covering would interfere in the activity, are receiving a service for which temporary removal of the face covering is necessary to perform the service, are entering a business or are receiving a service and are asked to temporarily remove a face covering for identification purposes, are communicating with someone who is hearing impaired or otherwise disabled and where the ability to see the mouth is essential to communication, are actively engaged engaged in a public safety role, including but not limited to law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency medical personnel, are officiating at a religious service, or are giving a speech for broadcast or an audience. 3. To protect workers, shoppers, and the community, no business that is open to the public may provide service to a customer or allow a customer to enter its premises unless the customer is wearing a face covering as required by this order. Hang on, I just gotta say, this is all so dehumanizing. Here we go with the executive order again. Um, businesses that are open to the public must post signs at entrances instructing the customers of their legal obligation to wear a face covering while inside. The Michigan Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity may in its discretion require such businesses to post signs developed and made available by the department or conforming to requirements established by the department. A department or agency that learns that license is in violation of this section will consider whether the public health, safety, or welfare requires a summary, temporary suspension of the business's license to operate, including but not limited to a liquor license, under Section 92 of the Administrative Procedure Act of 1969, as amended, blah, 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 blah. Okay, four. For purposes of this order, neither child care centers nor day residential travel or troop camps as defined by rule 400.11101 of the Michigan Administrative Code are considered public spaces. 5. The protections against discrimination in the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act of 1976 uh, and any other protections against discrimination in Michigan law apply in full force to individuals wear a face covering under this order. 6. Nothing in this order shall be taken to abridge protections guaranteed by the state or federal constitution. This does abridge our protections in both the state and the federal constitution. 
going back to the executive order Uh, and no individual is subject to penalty under Section A of this order for removing a mask while engaging in religious worship at a house of religious worship. Consistent with guidance from the CDC, congregants are strongly encouraged to wear face coverings during religious services. 7. As individuals, this order takes effect immediately. As to businesses, this order will take effect at 12.01 a.m. on Monday, July 13th. Consistent with blah 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 blah. Okay, anyways, given under my hand and the great seal of the state of Michigan, this was signed July 10th, 2020 at 9.43 a.m. And listen, she's not the only one. The entire media is shoving this propaganda. Here's a story from the Daily Wire. Jennifer Aniston shares photo of a friend on ventilator so here's she tweets this picture out of a friend of hers on a ventilator so she says this is our friend Kevin perfectly healthy not one underlying health issue this is COVID this is real we can't be so naive to think we can outrun this. If we want this to end, and we do, right? The one step we can take is please wear a damn mask. Just think about those who have already suffered through this horrible virus. Do it for your family, and most of all yourself. COVID affects all ages. One, that's misleading. I've already covered that for... The majority of the population, this virus is not that dangerous, and age is one of the biggest conditions. And I've got an idea for you, Jennifer Aniston. How about you shut your damned mouth? I want to transition into the concluding segment of the episode. We live in a brutal world. And progressives can't seem to accept this. Um, because as I explained in the last episode, they have this belief, this misguided belief that we're developing into some kind of utopia. But these bureaucrats, such as my governor and Joe Biden, they are beyond brutal. They are cruel. Brutality is sometimes just a fact of living in this fallen world. But cruelty is willful, is defined as willfully and knowingly causing pain or distress to others. Cruelty is causing unnecessary pain or distress to others. I want to go over Biden's unity platform now. For those of you who don't know anything about this yet, 
this thing is all-encompassing. It covers almost every issue you could imagine. But we're going to commence with the economy. I'm going to be reading and commenting on uh, some stories from PJ Media that actually, as they put it, they've tackled this and summarized it so you don't have to because it's tedious. So the title of the first story is Biden slash Sanders Unity Agenda Fundamental Economic Transformation Part 1. Um, so it says it's about equity, not equality. The racial equity um, section starts with a running statement that says equal treatment for all Americans under the law is not sufficient. Um, so it says some of these actions have to do with lending practices and penalties for discriminatory lenders. The problem with these policies is that progressives tend to use disparate and discriminatory as synonyms, which they are not. An outcome disparity can have a number of root causes that have nothing to do with discrimination. To accomplish this monitoring, they would create a new government agency, the Public Re Credit Reporting Agency. Okay, so my commentary. On very surface level, as if we need any more government agencies. On a deeper level, um, the journalists over at PJ Media make a very critical point here that I want to emphasize in my own uh, words. And some of you might know this already if you've ever had a argument with a progressive. Is they off they whenever you're chatting with them about any kind of inequalities economic inequalities in society they always make the they always assume they always make the assumption that any inequality has to do with some brand of discrimination whether it be racism or sexism or whatever like okay I'll give you an example this George Floyd case this is a this is uh, uh, an example of police brutality at its worst, but it still to this day has never been conclusive that the reason George Floyd was killed was because the Chauvin was racist. It's always assumed that when a white cop kills a black man, that it's, it's because of racism. But this has never, in this case, been actually conclusively shown. Okay, going back to the story. Uh, families. The family section deals with four primary issues. Now, I'm just going to comment on one of them. 
uh, high quality paid leave, a minimum of 12 weeks of paid leave for caretakers with a, so, all right, I got a comment on this. This to me is wicked. This whole redistribution of wealth. This has been a classic um, for progressives. Is this paid leave for women who have got pregnant and have to leave work for a time to care for their newborn babies. But look, if the government's going to pay for this, this means the taxpayers are going to pay for this. Look, I'm a single male. Why should people in my position have to subsidize a woman's life choice to get pregnant? It's even worse than that, though. Because going back to the story, it says, with a broad definition of what caretaking means and covers almost any personal relationship, this leaves... This leave would need to be paid at the rate of 66% of wages. So, at this point, it's beyond women who want to have a baby. At this point, broadly, almost anyone can define themselves as a caretaker. Let's go on to climate change. The title of this story is Biden slash Sanders Unity Platform Climate Justice big government, and buckets of borrowed cash. It says, No more nuclear. This platform wipes out Biden's original plan to cripple the oil, gas, and coal industries while embracing nuclear. Nuclear is not part of this plan, not because it isn't safe. Instead, because it requires a smaller footprint and less intervention doesn't meet the political goals of the radical left. Instead, they have created a plan that will level us dependent on foreign sources of oil and gas because the recommendations still cripple oil, gas, and coal. It merely increases the likelihood we end up in more f endless foreign wars. It also leaves us at the mercy of China for incredible amounts of rare metals because their movement has stopped us from mining our own. So, I just don't know. This is another fallacious argument of the progressives. They want to regulate our current energy industry into oblivion. Because, you know, climate change. Because if we don't, it's going to be the end of the world in 10 years, 12 years, whatever. But our economy can't transition to clean energy in a matter of hours. So we're going to export our energy needs. Because a lot of other nations are still going to be partaking in the end of the world with energy industries such as our current one. So your plan is just to make us dependent on our enemies for energy? Anyways, going on to the next story. This one's titled, 
Biden-slash-Sanders unity agenda, fundamental transformation of the criminal justice system. This is one of the most wicked sections of the platform, in my opinion. It says, Reimagining criminal justice. In the summary found on pages 7 to 10 on the Unity platform, the team talks about mass incarceration as if the First Step Act never happened. Of course, they also note racial disparities in imprisonment and imply this as a function of racism. In the current environment, police brutality earned an entire paragraph. Okay, so let me unpack that paragraph. Okay, this is another um, prime example of uh, the argument in the um, economic section. So, there's an inequality. There's more blacks in prison than whites. So, progressives automatically assume it's because of racism. Actually, it's because although blacks only are 12% of the U.S. population, they commit the majority of violent crime in this country. Also, this talk about mass incarceration is a deception. If you guys want a resource for um, arguing against progressives arguments on criminal justice get Heather McDonald's book The War on Cops it's perfect for that going back to the story um systemic narratives so it says many of the suggestions align with elements of the House of Representatives criminal justice reform bill that was dead on arrival in the Senate. Some go further than that. Uh, prohibiting the transfer of surplus military equipment to law enforcement. Increasing pattern or practice investigations. And increasing Department of Justice oversight of local departments. So now we're going to have federal government bureaucrats performing inquis inquisition on every decision a local police department makes? Because centralized decision making has such a good track record. And federal government bureaucrats do such an amazing job at oversight. Lowering the prosecution standards for civil rights violations for law enforcement officers. Severely limiting qualified immunity. More stupid notions. Uh, mental health and substance abuse counselors to help respond to calls. Legalization of marijuana and expungement of convictions. Just so you know, I do not have any libertarian or progressive leanings on legalization of illegal drugs. It's my opinion that the cost to civilization 
of legalizing these drugs far outweighs the cost of the war on drugs. Um, elimination of cash bail. Okay, my response to this is the argument now from those on the left, libertarians, and many who are allegedly on the right, is that the cash bail system was created by capitalists so that the rich could take advantage of the poor. I don't have time, but there are many reasons this is false. Um, going back to the story, uh, repeal of all mandatory minimums, another stupid notion, abolish the death penalty. Okay, I actually want to go a little deeper on this one. Because a lot of these goals go to the deeper level of a philosophical or worldview. At the root of a lot of these issues is what your theories are on uh, the objectives of government punishment. There are essentially four theories on the objectives of government punishment. The first is fairness. If you cause pain and suffering to another, an equal amount of pain and suffering should be caused to you. A second theory on the objective of punishment is deterrence. If we punish someone for murder, it might deter anyone else from murdering. The third theory of the objective of punishment is incapacitation. If we incarcerate a criminal, he's not out in society free to commit more crimes. I, it's my opinion that all three of those are biblical reasons for the, for punishment. There is a fourth one that most uh, leftists assume to be the right objective of punishment. And this fourth one, I, in my opinion, is unbiblical. It's rehabilitation. Basically, by punishment, we can reform the criminal. Now, government punishment is administered by men. In my opinion, I don't believe that for a majority of the cases that man's system of punishment can reform man. In some cases, it may um, alter his behavior in a minor way so that it's more socially acceptable. I don't even believe that happens many times. Okay, moving on to the story. Um, extensive use of clemency to address racial disparities. So we're going to have governors freeing criminals just because they're 
incarcerated and they're not white. Um, eliminate private prisons and diversion programs and solitary confinement and reincarceration for technical parole and probation violations. Um, the Unity platform, it would also expand the ban the box policy. This policy would prevent employers from asking about criminal convictions on job applications. Doing so could be catastrophic if it does not exempt employers who deal with children, the elderly, and other vulnerable populations. This is correct. In my opinion, I think an employer has a right to know if someone's been incarcerated, especially depending on what... Um, industry they're going into and what their uh, crime was. Anyways, I'm going to conclude with this story from PJ Media. Um, this one is titled, Hey Suburban Voters, Joe Biden's Housing Policies Will Ruin Your Communities. And you need to read this story, but I'm also, I'm going to read from the story that this author quotes um, it's in the National Review attention America's suburbs you have just been annexed okay so um, the plan has three elements one inhibit suburban growth when possible and when possible encourage suburban remigration to cities. This can be achieved, for example, through regional growth boundaries as in Portland or by relative neglect of highway building and repair in favor of public transportation. Two, force the urban poor into the suburbs through the imposition of low-income housing quotas. Um, three, institute regional tax base sharing where a state forces upper-middle-class suburbs to transfer tax revenue to nearby cities and less well-off inner-ring suburbs. Um, the AFFH obligates any local jurisdiction that receives HUD funding to conduct a detailed analysis of its housing occupancy by race, ethnicity, national origin, English proficiency, and class, among other categories. Grantees must identify factors such as zoning laws, public housing emissions criteria, and lack of regional collaboration that account for any inequality in living patterns. Localities must also list community assets, such as quality schools, transportation hubs, parks, and jobs, and explain any disparities in access to such assets by race, ethnicity, national origin, English proficiency, class, and more. Localities must then develop a plan to remedy these inequalities subject to approval by HUD. By itself, this amounts to an extraordinary takeover of America's cities and towns by the federal government. There's more. Um, AFFH obligates grant to conduct all of these analyses at both the local and regional levels. In other words, it's not enough for, say, Philadelphia's Montgomery County suburbs to analyze their own populations by race, ethnicity, and class to determine 
whether there are any inequalities in where groups live or in access to schools or parks, transportation and jobs, those suburbs are also also obligated to compare their own housing situations to the greater Philadelphia region as a whole. So, um, if some Montgomery County suburbs are predominantly upper middle class white and zoned for single family housing, while the Philadelphia region as a whole is dotted with concentrations of less well off African Americans, Hispanics, or Asians, those suburbs could be obliged obligated to nullify their own zoning ordinances and build high-density, low-income housing at their own expense. At that point, those suburbs would have to direct advertising to potential minority occupants in the greater Philadelphia region. Essentially, this is what HUD has imposed on Westchester County, New York, the most famous dry run for AFFH. So, what he's saying is that um, this basically suburbs have to compare and contrast their demographic data with the whole region and because generally more minorities uh, live in urban settings than suburban these suburbs would be forced to build low-income apartment buildings in the suburbs and would have to advertise this to um, minorities uh, living in cities. So they'll be forced to build low-income apartment buildings. They'll be, won't be able to build single-family housing and will have to import uh, minorities from the city into the suburbs. In the story he says, in other words, by obligating all localities receiving HUD funding to compare their demographics to the region as a whole, AFFH effectively nullifies municipal boundaries, even with no allegation or evidence of intentional discrimination, the mere existence of a demographic inequality in the region as a whole must be remedied by a given suburb. Suburbs will literally be forced to import population from elsewhere at their own expense and in violation of their own laws. In effect, suburbs will have been annexed by a city-dominated region, their laws suspended, and their tax money transferred to erstwhile non-residents, and to make sure the new high-density housing developments are close to community assets, such as schools, transportation, parks, and jobs, bedroom suburbans, bedroom suburbs will be forced to develop many downtowns. In effect, they will become more like the cities the residents chose to leave in the first place. So, not only do they have to build these low-income apartment buildings and import residents from the city to live in them. But what he's saying is these suburbs will also be forced to build um, in, in them near these uh, 
low-income apartment buildings, they'll be forced to build, uh, you know, like amenities, community assets, schools, uh, public transportation, parks, um, you know, businesses. Like you said, they'll become, the suburbs will become many downtowns. Scary stuff.